When you haven't seen or talked to someone for a while, you wonder how and what they're doing. Then here I run into Robert Kasmer, an Imago relationship therapist for couples. He was on this radio show twice, many moons ago. Come to find out, he has done this now for 25 years. Good for him. I twisted Bob's arm a bit to come on again this Saturday morning, and he's going to delight and inspire us all with Imago relationship therapy. Bob Kasmer will also discuss how to go from conflict to connection and how to heal relationships this Saturday morning from 8 to 11. To Gesundheit with Jacobus, Health Talk Radio, integrating allopathic and all natural medicine one show at a time. Here is your host, Jacobus Hollowine. And good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for tuning in today. We will be on till 11 o'clock talking about relationships, and we do it with Bob Kasmer, who has been a regular guest, was no, a couple times in the past, long, long past, a long time ago. Uh huh on this program and um like the promo said i ran into him and i said we got to do this again it's been a while so i'm glad he's back with us on the program and i'm sure you're gonna enjoy this this affects all of us talking about relationships and so um as always uh, as we talk about health healing and healthy lifestyles and that's what this program is all about uh, we talk about uh, all allopathic medicine and all natural medicine the integration of the two and uh, be it mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, these are topics that will be discussed every Saturday morning on this program. As always, when we talk about this, just want to let you know that we're not here to diagnose or treat or cure. We're here to help. We're here to educate, inform, and entertain. Find information. Find, look it up on the Internet. Uh, Bob has a website. And you can, you can actually get a lot of information from that and great links from there on out so that you, uh, you become better educated about this, this specific part of health. Now, uh, let me tell you a little bit about him. Um, Robert Kasmer is a licensed psychotherapist in private practice in Bozeman, Montana. He has a master's degree in social work and more than 20 years of experience, experience in the therapeutic counseling of couples, adults, families, adolescents, and abused children. He is highly effective as a workshop presenter, group facilitator, and individual counselor. Montana's first certified Imago therapist, Mr. Kasmer, is a member of the Institute for Imago Relationship Therapy. He has completed intensive training through IIRT on an ongoing basis and has co-facilitated workshops. He has completed additional work in couples therapy at the University of Washington's Gottman Institute. For his general practice, Mr. Kasmer has completed advanced training in family therapy, family mediation, chemical dependency, depression, and hypnotherapy. He is an experienced hypnotherapist and has taught hypnosis to colleagues in social work and mental health fields. So, if you don't hear Chuck say anything, that means that he is probably under hypnosis today. Chuck, good morning to you, by the way. Good morning, Jacobitz. And I don't mean by the way, like by the way, but of course, good morning. <laughs> good morning. 
So uh, if you feel somebody looking, staring at you from your left, it's Bob, who will be uh, putting a spell on you. I'm not scared. No, I know you're not. <laughs> a resident of Bozeman's is 1994. Mr. Casmo previously practiced in Michigan and New Mexico. He is located at the Medical Arts Building, 300 North Wilson. And uh, you can call him anytime at 585-2710. 585-2710. And his website is Robert Casmer with one O. <laughs> Casmer is K-A-S, the S from Sam, the M from Mary, E-R, Casmer, robertcasmer.com. So check that out. Having said all that, Bob, good morning to you. Good morning, and thanks for having me. You may have to come closer to the microphone, or you can sit back, but I'll pull the microphone towards you. Okay, whoops. And, of course, then, then we have Chuck, who will make sure that you sound great. Okay. Yeah, oh, hey, there we go. So, my goodness, what a topic. I uh, Relationships is something that always interests me because it's all about relationships wherever we go, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, People don't come in uh, to a therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist's office for uh, uh, problems with their car, decorating their house. It's always about relationship, whether it's with an employer, a sibling, a spouse, but it's always about relationship. It is. I think it's about relationship and how we greet the world, how we interact with uh, the world around us. What is it, uh, if you, you do, if I look at your resume, things that you have done, I mean, mm-hmm. just in a nutshell, what was it about Imago relationship, relationship therapy, that pulled you, that you said, you know, this is it? What, what was it, who, who is behind it, uh, who is the inventor of this, uh, or inventors, and, and how, what was it that made it so special for you? Well... Harvel Hendricks, who is a Ph.D. psychologist, and approximately 32, 35 years ago, he was teaching at uh, one of the Texas universities. And uh, after a second divorce, his students start saying, hey, you know, you're a psychologist. What's going on? You've had, this is your second divorce. And at that point, uh, Harvel uh, did some a reflection on why is this happening? And then he realized there were no therapies out there, no models of psychotherapy for relationship. There was a lot of there were a lot of models and a lot of good people out there who were working with individuals, but there the format to work with two people and focus on the energy, the relationship between them is much different than working with two individuals. And he. Uh, has been developing this program over the last 30-some years, remarried at, to another psychologist this time, and they've been married probably 25 or 30 years, Helen oh. Hunt, and they've developed this program uh, uh, using their own ideas, stealing ideas from other models of therapy, and there's a group of therapists that have all added to this, and the model keeps evolving. Mm. Um, why I got into it was that Going back years ago, the suffix do in Japanese means the way, Aikido, Mm -hmm. uh, Judo, Karate Do. 
And I always thought there should be relationship dough, <laughs> a way to higher consciousness <laughs> yeah. through relationship. And uh, I think Harville Hendricks is, and uh, the group of Imago therapists around the world are really going towards that. You know, one of the sayings is that we're, we're born in relationship, we're emotionally traumatized, wounded in relationship, and we'll be healed in relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that humans just don't do well in isolation. That's, that's a good point. You know, you just uh, lose it. Now, so uh, Harville Hendricks, uh, so it's about 30 years old. 30, 35 years old, huh? yeah. Huh. Now, the, the imago, what is the difference between imago and image? Well, uh, uh, I, I, in Latin, that's what uh, um, imago means, is image. And what they're referring to is that we tend to, and I say tend to because people want to uh, struggle with this, but we tend to have an unconscious template in our brain, in our mind, about what relationship will be. And we have that image, and it often comes from our childhood, just by passive ob- observation and learning, like we learn any language we, we know, we get that template from watching our parents or the people who raised us, how they interact. Mm-hmm. And we tend to go to what's familiar, not what's healthy, and we see that over and over again, and we, we think we tend to marry people that are often similar to our parents yes uh, and a combination of mom and dad let's say and often not their best traits i see uh-huh. and then uh we believe that it's an opportunity if you have the two people working together to work out some of the unconscious let's say behaviors that aren't working for people mm-hmm. and bring them to a higher consciousness of relationship so people begin to own their role in creating the good, the bad, the whatever they have. My God, if you look at society um, and you look at the amount of divorces there are, mm-hmm. the effect that has on children, we see that going together mm-hmm. with a tremendous increase in drug use. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see it in uh, still domestic violence, um, just unhappy relationships. Mm-hmm amongst the young people here mm-hmm. and that also goes together with 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 what's going on with the parents itself absolutely um this is uh, this we as parents really have a responsibility you know uh, to to start today it's always the first day of the rest of your life as they say mm-hmm. to really try to fix things and and we're just i don't really think that we're equipped as that's why we have to come to a therapist like yourself to learn what this is because you cannot just get up in the morning and do stuff and then go to bed at night and, and say i did everything i had to do apparently that is constantly like you say we're in relationships with people all day long yeah and you bring up a great point 52 percent of first marriages in america end in divorce 65 percent of second marriages wow. end in divorce wow. and i've read varying numbers on th- third marriages and i think my theory is that I'm uh, almost. I'm getting towards sixty. My parents' generation didn't have a clue about relationship, but my generation has the opportunity uh, to. I think in the first time in the history of the world to have 
focus on relationship. Abraham Maslow's work, uh, Hierarchy of Needs, and the first needs were, you know, food, shelter, clothing, the basics. Mm -hmm. And I think my parents coming through the Depression and all that, that was their focus. And even though we've written about love for hundreds of years, I think my generation really has the first opportunity to really move into the second uh, layer of needs, which is intimacy and maybe a more spiritual life exploration. And marriages up until I think recently have been based on political and maybe religious reasons and economic reasons. And now people are really able to take the time and want a healthy relationship. But this is a, a new exploration. Nobody seems to have the tools to do it. And the tools we got uh, were from our parents, and our parents absolutely did the best they they could. And it's not to blame, it's to explain, and I can't emphasize that enough. And so we are trying to learn what people's core needs are and help themselves and help their partner meet those needs, feel more fulfilled, and when it works... People live longer, they have disease less frequently when they get sick, they recover faster. Um, well, it's interesting that you bring this up because if you look at the older generation, our parents, mm-hmm. and before, there were a lot less divorces, mm-hmm. but it was a very much a male-dominated world. Mm-hmm. Women were not supposed to be in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Women were not, to speak, not supposed to speak up. Uh, with the whole women's liberation and the way society has gone, Women are more and more equals, mm-hmm. are able to express themselves, are doing that in the relationships, are showing in their behavior characteristics that usually would show up in the male. Mm-hmm. And, and so is that a reason why we see more divorces? Well, I don't know if I could. I, I, I would say there's a correlation to prove causation. I don't think I can. Maybe uh, some researchers can. But I think women are demanding of their husbands way more than they ever did before. Huh. And I Is really, it probably because they work out the house and say that as, uh, we have to pull the load together? Well, I don't know if it, that's part of it, but I think women in the last 20, 30 years have really begun to have a voice. Mm-hmm. And they are pushing for more intimacy, uh, more connection, and just a healthier relationship. And... Huh. I think a lot of men, uh, a matter of fact, I call the women the draggers in my office and the men usually the draggies. <laughs> and uh, women are pushing for uh, a, a deeper sense of uh, relationship, deeper meaning. And I think that's part of it. But there's ec- economics plays in on this. There's lots of different things that have led to this point in time in relationship and people evolving for or wanting to evolve into a <clears throat> healthier, more dynamic relationships. I see. And when you go back to the parenting issue brought up, I get people coming in all the time and saying, I don't know what else to do in my marriage. And it's because they, they haven't, you know, their, their toolbox is limited. A lot of times People come in and are thinking about divorce, but they don't want a divorce. Uh. They just don't know how to make it better. And so by learning these tools, it goes back to what you were talking about is 
the healthier relationship mom and dad can have, or you know, the couple in the house, the healthier relationship they are teaching their kids constantly. The kids are observing. Their brains are attuned to learning at that point, at an early age. And they see what's going on, and then yeah. we do what we know, not what's good for us. Yeah, you often, you more and more, uh, because this is such a country that 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 uh, idolizes athletes and mm-hmm. and Hollywood. You often see, of more and more, you see interviews with individuals who say how they grew up in a broken household, mm-hmm. how they were raised by their mother, who had three, four jobs trying to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. They had five siblings. And somehow here they rise to the top, and now they're gazillionaires. Uh-huh. And of course, those are visions that that gives those broken up families or children who only have one of the parents left, and who are going through tough times, the hope that mm-hmm. there is a possibility for them. But obviously, those percentages are extremely small for those who make it to the top. Abysmal. Yes. And uh, you know, there's always people that are going to do really well, no matter in spite of the, their environment and no matter what happens. Yeah. But for the, the greater masses, that's just not true. No. And besides, finance is only one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it all comes down to the relationships. Yeah, I think kids do really well under most conditions if they really feel loved. Not just know it, but feel loved. And uh, it's it's a tough thing to communicate, and it's tough for parents who didn't get it when they were kids. We mm. do what we know, unfortunately, as I said. Hmm. Um, but I also want to say that there's been a lot of research about divorce. Mm-hmm. And Judith Wallerstein, University of Michigan, a 25-year study, her study found that kids will do pretty well through a divorce long as mom and dad still stay connected, but Dad has to stay in the picture. If the father walks away, the kids tend not to do very well. Oh, I see. Uh, you know, and I'm off. Walk to, away. We're talking about different city. Yeah, yeah they so just if, vanish. But if you stay in town. Yeah. Okay, then it's. And know. they have regular visits. Dad is still a dad, and often fathers, for some reason, will be better dads after divorce than uh, during marriage. But that's a different subject. Divorce doesn't have to be a destroy children. It's it depends on how the parents do it. And but there hasn't been a study that shows how kids fare in a house that's really chaotic and there's a lot of uh, uh, arguing going on in acrimony versus divorce. There's we don't know how kids raised in those homes do versus divorce. Mm-hmm. Divorce. Well, there is there is often a. Um, uh you know, I've listened in the past to somebody like Dr. Laura, mm-hmm. okay, and people can laugh about her, but she says if you go through a divorce and you get whoever takes the responsibility to take care of the children, she says make that your commitment until they're all gone out the door before you decide you want to start another relationship. Mm-hmm. And often people start relationships which causes the divorce to begin with. Right. And... um and then when the kids are involved, they go right away from a from a uh, imbalanced home mm-hmm. to a broken home mm-hmm. into 
right away into a new relationship mm-hmm. with a new home, mm-hmm. and it's it's it goes way too fast for the kids because they're slapped over the head from the from the left side uh-huh. because one of the parents was already in this long term relationship. Yes. So that is one of the tough things that I feel. Uh, for the children to deal with these quick changes mm-hmm. that in a way have been brewing but they weren't aware of it right and now how are they going to deal with that so when we come back let's talk about that if you don't mind of course stay tuned because we will be right back we were talking about divorces right mm-hmm. before we went <clears throat> to the commercial break i mentioned that we sometimes see people that are a success story in spite of the mm-hmm. problems that they're in. You mm-hmm. mentioned that divorces where the father stays close to the family, mm-hmm. uh, where it really <clears throat> is a relationship between uh, an issue between the the parents, mm-hmm. as long as the father stays involved with the, with the children, that there is a higher chance of ch- children being successful. Yeah, I, I don't know. Successful, yes. Well-adjusted. They do pretty well. They don't do that much different than kids that are in uh, uh, two-parent homes. But, uh, again, the fathers stay involved, and hopefully the mothers. I think when Wallerstein did this study, it's probably 15 years old. Uh, Back then, I think kids were almost exclusively going to the mothers. That's starting to shift, and... uh, uh, it's imper- important that uh, imperative that both parents are parents. They don't have yes. to be uh, a married couple anymore. Mm-hmm. We're just we're just true. On the other <clears throat> hand, it all starts with um, with the couple, the the parents mm-hmm. themselves, or the two adults. So that is in a way the basics. Now I have heard in the past <clears throat> that when people start dating, it probably would be a good idea that if they decide they would like to get married, that they should do some therapy together because all that, that would bring out some of the strong points and the weak points and where there may be differences. Are you a fan of that? Well, I think I have some mixed feelings about it. All right. I think that uh, often what I've seen, not always, that a young couple comes in, maybe not even a young couple, but let's say a young couple comes in, they want to do a couple sessions about uh, a premarital therapy. Often what I've seen is intellectually they know this is a good idea. Emotionally, I see that they're often not really able, willing to look at some of the problems. They're in that romantic stage and love is blind and Mm -hmm. they often don't want to look at the tough stuff. I think that there's some workshops and things that may help them begin to look at it. And also some uh, uh, some churches require that they have premarital therapy, and that doesn't seem to be as successful just because therapy at gunpoint really doesn't work. There's, they often come in, well, I'll do this, but we don't need it. Well, we'll do this. I don't want to be here. And so... Um, I have some concerns about that, but I think at my job, even if people aren't really willing to sit down in the romantic stage and look at some of the problems that uh, may be mildly dormant or camouflaged, I, I think I can plant some seeds of how to maybe come to grips with it, but how to deal with it and normalize it 
couples are going to struggle and that it's not the struggle that is important. It's the solution that we try. And if, uh, if we go to um, the fight or flight response, which everybody does, yeah. it's not going to work. And so I want to plant the seed that we can find better ways to deal with it. And to normalize the pattern that it's, we're going to come out of the romantic stage and there's going to be disharmony at times. Hmm. There is, uh, there is something that comes to mind as I was uh, preparing for the show. I looked at the um, little video clip of Harvell Hendricks on your, on your website. Uh-huh. And um, uh, we have a call on hold, but we get to the call in just a moment. So please don't hang up. Um, they talk about the importance of dialogue. So mm-hmm. now let's think about a premarital relationship uh, the suggestion of doing some therapy together. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harvell b- b- says there are three dialogue. Dialogue is a structured process. Yes. And he says there are three things that are essential here. That is mirroring, mm-hmm. validation, mm-hmm. and feeling empathy. Mm-hmm. If you work with somebody in a premarital counseling session, between as far as the mirroring, the validation, and the empathy mm-hmm. is concerned, are those not present at the time? Oh, absolutely. But uh, that's the tool. But if they're saying we're fine, we don't have any problems, that denial keeps them from really addressing what's going on. And so I don't know if you want me now or later to describe that, that no, let, let's do that later. Okay. Because I kind of wanted to follow this up and let's see what our caller has to say. Caller, oh. good morning. Your name, please. How can we help you? Well, you can call me Muggled. Hey, uh, Daniel, good some, morning to you. Something like Imaggio. Muggled was a famous performing chimpanzee. Now, one of the things that I've heard on this philosophy is that people, when choosing a mate, often choose some of the worst aspects of the image of their parents. And that, that sounds kind of mysterious, why uh, intelligent, rational people would do that. Is there a uh, principle of why we outed enough to uh, choose a mate like our parents, but choose some of the worst aspects of our parents' personality? Uh, should I address that now? Yeah, please, go ahead. Well, muggles, I, let me start with your... <laughs> let me start with your premise, <clears throat> The premise that humans are intelligent and logical is a myth. Um, What we do know is that intelligence is hijacked by emotion over and over and over again. And we just see that in day-to-day living. How many of us know that eating fast food too often, smoking cigarettes and whatever else we do, We know it's not good for us, but other parts of us take over. And so uh, it is a mystery, uh, and I agree with you, but uh, what we know about humans is they're going to follow what they know, what is familiar, not what is good for them. And often it's really unconscious. Uh, People, you know, when they first meet, you hear statements like, oh, I felt like I'd known you all my life. Nobody understands me the way you do. And what they're really saying is, this is really familiar. And it's often from uh, unconscious childhood memories. And so 
um, we do get hijacked by those emotions. They say that one of the reasons economists were often so wrong in the past is they are, were assuming that humans were intelligent and rational, but <laughs> unfortunately, uh, we get hijacked by our emotions. But why is it indeed, like uh, like he says, why is it indeed the worst characteristics? Why don't we why don't we have the the, the best characteristics? Well, this is the theory, and I don't know. It's like a lot of theories; you can't absolutely prove it. But the theory is that we. Well, let me back up. The theory is that Harville Hendricks, his wife, and others say is, is that whether you want to call it God or nature, I don't want to get into that debate. It's not that's not what this is about. But God or nature wants us to become as whole and healthy as possible, and to do that, we, the belief is, need to address, heal, uh, old wounds from childhood, dysfunctional feelings, dysfunctional behavior. And so by choosing somebody who has similar traits, characteristics that uh, were from our parents, the unhealthiest, it is an opportunity if you have a cooperative partner to go back, get more clarity, understand the source, and then begin to change behavior and uh, emotion. It's just kind of a circular uh, process. I see. Uh, all right. Now I have a personal question, then I can leave and you can continue. But uh, you're welcome I, to hang out. What is it? You're welcome to hang out, Muggles. Oh, in the periphery. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, like an angel. Now I've never been married, and I remember saying to myself when I was younger uh, that seeing all these divorces around me, it doesn't seem much purpose to even try to find land the mate because they'll be gone mm-hmm. but since i'm a never say die person there's going to be an aging single parties aging singles party on sunday so there'll be a lot of us that have been around the block uh, can you give us any hints of how we can recognize each other as good mates even though that we're in our 40s 50s 60s so you want to know at this get-together are, are there any clues that would help people recognize whether the person they're interested in is a good match? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, anything like that. What would make the, the oil to make it smoother in an uh, aging single party? Because it's kind of different than just being in a bar with a bunch of 20-year-olds. Yeah. Uh, well, let me think about this. I think one of, some of the things I would look at, and I don't know if I have any empirical data for this, but... Is there eye contact? Does this person seem to want to listen? Um, what are they talking about? Uh, what is their body language telling me? How safe do I feel with this person? I think tuning into our body, because our body is a great barometer of what we're experiencing, what we're feeling. And they may trigger emotions, but then it's, it, it, there are emotions. We need to listen to it. And I don't know if we can, other than intuitively sense in the first meeting, whether this is somebody we we want to have a second encounter with. Uh, I mean, I think it takes more than one encounter to really say, well, yeah, I think there's potential here. I think we have to go off, well, I'm attracted, they listened, uh, I enjoyed them, there was some kind of connection. Hmm. And I don't know if I can give advice how to get there in one session. Oh. I think uh, I would like to be able to give you an answer, but 
If I could, I might be on Oprah instead of Jacoba's show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me take off then. Uh, okay. Well, that's a, that's a good question, Daniel. I, uh, oh. I appreciate that. Sorry right. I couldn't give you more information. Oh, because like it, is, it is a battle uh, for those who have gone through relationships who are now in the single path or people like yourself who have never been married and, and wonder how it would be, but how, how do you start? Where do you, how do you approach it? You know, that's a, because, and, and this is actually a very good point because as Bob and I were talking before the show, understanding intimacy is one of the missing keys when relationship is not going well. Mm -hmm. So what intimacy means, it has a different meaning for different people. Absolutely. And it is the key in any relationship that you feel in, that you feel intimacy. Connection. Yeah. Connection. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. To the politicians and economic uh, shakers and movers around us, too, if we could feel more connected to them, uh, we'd be able to trust them better. Yeah, but it is with need. With, uh, that's a good point also. But it shows indeed that everything in life is relationship. Mm -hmm. either, you, you know, and that's why Bob says it is very hard to be in a relationship completely by yourself. We're all, always looking for relationship. Is mm -hmm. that fair to say, for Bob? I yeah. mean, for if, it, if it is between a, a parent and a child, or between two adults, or friends, or yeah. a teacher, student, or whatever it is. Oh, radio. Yeah. <laughs> uh, your uh, pets, I think, are. There are all ways that people are trying to stay connected or get connected. Uh -huh. Well, thanks for the call, Daniel. All right. Toodaloo. Toodaloo. Good, uh, good call. That's uh, because that is a. Actually, it helps us to move into this. Uh, into this topic of the intimacy, mm -hmm. what what is intimacy? You already mentioned the eye contact and mm -hmm. feeling that there is a there is a connection back that, mm -hmm. that you feel this warmth from another person. Could you explain what intimacy means in in your work? Well, I think you know. First of all, I want to say that you're right. It, it intimacy means something different for every single person, and even in coupleship. It always, now I'm cautious about saying always, but a huge percentage of the time, intimacy means different things to each person in the coupleship. Mm -hmm. They both have an idea, often unconscious, I call it the covert contract, of how we are going to stay connected and have this relationship, pursue this relationship. And usually there's one that is in the coupleship that is more comfortable with, uh, a close and intimate relationship, and then there's one that's more comfortable with distance. And every relationship seems to have a pursuer and a distancer. Hmm. And so intimacy, I think, in an ideal way, is putting down your defenses long enough to really be in the present with your partner. Mm -hmm. And not be thinking of what you're going to counter what they said, not thinking about what's dinner for dinner, but just really being present with the healthiest part of you. There's no time and space. You're there. Yes. And it may be a connection of 10 seconds, 10 minutes, but we know that that's intimacy. Uh, well, at least I think that's intimacy, is when people... You see a huge shift when I can get people to peel back their defenses and just really be present for their partner. 
They go from almost instantly from a, a conflict and feeling acrimony to feel you watch their faces change, their eyes soften, their breathing deepens, and they just feel much more relaxed. It's developing a sense of safety, which leads to a sense of intimacy. I have said in the past that people go to therapy sessions until they hit that point where the light switch goes on. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? I mean, it is, it is your knowledge, your expertise that you use in your observing the people you're working with mm-hmm. that you can make that one comment that all of a sudden they say, that's it, I get it. Well, I don't know I, if I see that that often. Here's more how I look at it. Okay. A, I, I will probably offend many colleagues, but I believe this is that awareness does not necessarily cause change. Mm, okay. And uh, maybe because of my background in construction, but I want to see people change. Just being aware... Uh, does not often or always create change. So that's a good place to start is having some awareness, but then we want to deepen awareness, create ways that people can start to change, have a partner, if I'm doing couples, that will support them doing this change. We're asking the brain to change neural pathways, shut down dysfunctional ones, and open up new ones. So it when we think about the biology of the brain and just having one comment tip us over into a new world, it happens. But in my experience, not that often. Maybe it's because I'm not very qualified. I don't know. But, <laughs> but what I do believe is that each person that comes to my office is an expert on themselves. Mm. They know infinitely more about themselves and their workings than I ever will or need to know. Sure. But my job is to present information, prod, ask questions, use humor to begin to get them to peel back defenses, dysfunctional thinking that's harming them, and become their own expert. So I don't know if that helps the question you asked. Well, I think in a way that you somehow there has to be uh, once once the switch goes on, mm-hmm. then you can say the real work starts because now we we have a willing participant mm-hmm. in a process where they say, okay, I see right now where right. I need to help, and now please help me. Yeah, and I hopefully what I see going back to the dragger and the draggy, often the woman dragging the husband, but not always. Once I think they feel safe in my office or any other therapist's office for that matter, um, and they begin to lower their guard and see what I'm talking about makes sense, then they're engaged in the process. It ha- Again, it is about relationship, and it's about relationship with the client, the therapist, the clients, and the therapist, and creating a safe place to begin the exploration process. Okay. That's good. Let's, let's stop right there, and then when we come back, we're going to continue okay. where we left off. Uh, I appreciate you're in the studio today with me. Uh, folks, Robert Kasmer is with me. We'll be right back. Stay tuned, please.
The uh, comment, the question I actually asked uh, Bob in last hour was about dialogue. Dialogue is a word that is used very prominently in Imago Relationship Therapy. And it is a structured process, what dialogue is all about. Uh, there are three aspects, mirroring, validation, and feeling empathized. Bob, would mm -hmm. you please explain that to us? Well, uh, the, also the more accurate term that I like to use is intentional dialogue, where couples will sit down with a clear intention about what one wants to discuss. Mm. And so part of it is, is I'm going to sit down, I have a clear intention of what I want my partner to understand, and their intention is going to be to listen to me and without their defenses. And so I think it can be very difficult to sit down and talk to your partner without defenses and very difficult for our partners to listen to us without defenses. Mm -hmm. Our defenses pop right up out of our uh, primitive part of our brain. It's an a, a radar system that's always searching for uh, safety or danger. And uh, when we are sometimes with our partners, we unconsciously see it as danger and immediately go into a defense mechanism hmm. of withdrawing, uh, attacking, denying. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can talk more about that later. So we two couple or two people in a coupleship sitting down, intentional dialogue one might say there's some things i need to talk about is this a good time yes it okay. is okay and so i would like you the sender of the message i'd like you to just mirror back what i'm telling you okay and that has multiple uh, uh, applications in that it helps the person listening set aside their defenses of <laughs> what they want to say back to their partner from daydreaming and they really helps them to listen much better. And so if I have to really mirror back what my partner's telling me, so you're really upset about me being two hours late last night. Okay, I understand that. Is there more? And so there's the mirroring. Um, the validating, which I think is a really important piece. Uh, <clears throat> and I think people that don't understand completely the intentional dialogue process it is not just repeating back it's it's validating it's really trying to step into your partner's experience it and seeing the world through their world not our own because they live in a different universe we need to be an anthropologist getting curious about why would they think do act like that so i mirror back i validate so I get that you're really upset with me for being late last night. I, I understand that. Uh, I'm, I would be angry too. You make sense to me. Uh, I didn't realize that it had that impact on you. But now that I hear this, I really get why you're feeling, thinking the way you are. Yeah. And so what we see is once, instead of what we normally do is, I, I, you know, the sender sends the message, I'm, I was really upset when you were two hours late. The normal unconscious response was, well, you're late all the time. I can't believe you're angry that I was late. Well, it's your fault. You told me the wrong restaurant. We go into that defensive mode, which immediately triggers defense in the partner. And then 
we we are off to the races and running. Or like I've had to do that, I would say, well, this person asked me a question and I just got distracted and this and this mm-hmm. and this. And justifying like, it. Exactly, really justifying it. Real and hear it. And when we feel heard and acknowledged, validated, it often leads to empathy. Me understanding why my partner would be angry at me for leave, being two hours late. And often when we talk, when I'm helping couples talk, so where where else in your life has someone not shown up for you? Mm-hmm. And often we see what gets triggered in us. Our partners couldn't push our buttons if there weren't our buttons. And often those buttons go back to, well, my mom was never home. I always was waiting for her. This is a huge issue. I hate waiting. Mm-hmm. So when I can link my response, my negative response back to, my history, it doesn't have to be my partner's fault so much. Mm-hmm. And in the dialogue, I coach people to try and minimize blame, accusation, and make it more about when I saw this, my reaction was this, instead of you did this wrong. Uh, even though there's only those three little pieces, there's much, much more going on. Mm-hmm than just mirroring, validating, and empathy. Uh, those are the goals. They're not all, always easy to get to, but it seems to be a system is when people really feel heard, their frustration diminishes. I know we'll get, I get couples, and every couple seems to have the reoccurring nightmare, same fight over and over and mm-hmm. over again. And what seems to be almost universally true is the one receiving the message says oh my god here we go again yeah. i'm going to hear about how i screwed up at christmas five years ago and the other one's thinking they still don't get why i was upset at that christmas dinner yeah yeah and so when i can slow the process down or help the couple slow the process down get the listener to really hear get the sender to send a message without blame accusation and judgment and the listener really, oh, now I really get it, not just at a peripheral but a very deep level. You watch the sender relax. They don't need to keep talking about it because they finally, <clears throat> excuse me, feel heard and understood by their partner. Is passive aggressiveness a sign that none of these three are working? <laughs> I guess, you know, I, I'm cautious not to label too much, but... What the way I think about passive aggressive behavior is mm-hmm. being two hours late is can be a real you know the heck with you I really don't care yeah and passive aggressiveness is for me just another way that does not work to communicate instead of saying you know. I was really angry that you chose to be with your sister and not me last night. I'll be two hours late today. So if there's enough safety, people have learned the tools, they can address the issue rather than act it out. Anybody that has kids has heard, and I've certainly said it to our kids when they were little, use your words when kids are freaking out. Well, the bad news is, we as adults don't always 
and maybe even rarely use our words. Uh. <clears throat> they have affairs, they drink too much, they withdraw, they get over-involved in kids' work, but they're not talking about what's going on, they're acting it out. And when we can get people to realize uh, the unconscious motivation maybe and learn the tools to speak and have a partner that's willing to listen, then they use their words rather than acting it out in other ways. I think that as adults, in order to survive these issues, mm -hmm. we are changing the standard of what is normal. We create a new normal. Mm -hmm. So I, where the couple got together and wanted to spend a lot of time together mm -hmm. and wanted to find out and stay up late and get up early mm -hmm. and go visit this and go walk and mm -hmm. all of a sudden because of changes and because of the we got together and the man the guy goes like i haven't seen my guys for a while i'm mm -hmm. going to go hang out with the guys tonight i'm going to mm -hmm. go watch this game over there where he would skip the game to be with the partner right. all of a sudden these adjustments in order to keep it together are going to be accepted as a new norm okay well so i will accept the fact that he is not going to spend that much time with me that he wants to he or she that she wants to be with her friends that she is not going to spend that time with me where we used to spend all this time mm -hmm. together uh, i realize that he really loves the kids but uh, i know he has all this work and he wants to hang out with his friends so i will accept this new change is, mm -hmm. you understand what i'm trying to say yes and is I that think okay is that okay well, or is that just uh, it, it's normal but is, is that just trying to avoid conflict well it's an individual case i can't say okay we do need space but are we beginning to use the the, the space to avoid but what you're describing is there's three or four stages of relationship depending on how you look at it and the first stage is the romantic stage. Mm -hmm. And in the romantic stage of love, there's a, there are chemicals dumped into the body, forms of adrenaline that we will not see in the body except in the romantic stage of love. And mm -hmm. these certain chemicals give us a sense of euphoria. We have extra energy. We can stay up later. Mm -hmm. uh, uh -huh. Everything seems better. Depression lifts. And so in the romantic stage of love, there is often a very deep connection. Defenses are down. It feels like fun. It's playful. And often after the romantic stage of love leads to the uh, power struggle or commitment. And soon after the commitment stage, after commitment, we go into the power struggle. And the romantic stage can last 20 minutes. It can last at the outside three to four years. And so then in the romantic stage, everybody's on their best behavior. Yeah. And we're in that stage of denial that, you know, well, I'm going to ignore that. Kind yeah, of thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you meant also with the premarital. Yeah. Count. Yes. So then the commitment comes. People tend to unconsciously drop some of the really good behavior and metaphorically, they start leaving their underwear out. And the couple often feels duped. Each person in the coupleship feels like, oh my gosh, I never saw that behavior before. Mm -hmm. And so then they feel like 
they're duped, they lead into uh, 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 the power struggle, and that's where the divorce happens. What we're asking in Imago and not asking and teaching is to go into a third stage, which is the conscious stage of relationship. Hmm. But part of the patterns are so universal, but what you're describing is we've had this great romantic period, six months, a year and a half, and all of a sudden they're feeling safe enough and he, she, it doesn't matter, wants to go to the baseball game like you mentioned. And you mentioned the word acceptance. This is often one of the developmental stages of marriage that causes difficulty. Yeah. Because what do you mean we've been together every Friday night for the last six months and now all of a sudden you want to go hang out with your coworkers? Uh, the stories get made up in our heads. They don't really love me anymore. I'm being betrayed. Who knows? The, the stories vary. And so if couples don't know how to negotiate this, it can be a big stumbling block that when one or both begin to separate and not stay as involved as they were. And you said something else is that couples struggle with is that my partner can have a Friday night out with their friends or travel to their, see their parents, whatever it is, and still love me. Yeah. They're not mutually exclusive, mm. but it, it often causes some struggle. And having the tools to be able to discuss it, the safety to, to look inside and see what's going on can make a big difference in helping people negotiate that part of relationship. Yeah. So what is the fourth stage after the conscious stage? Well, the first stage often is attraction, and often there's attraction, but not always. There's the romantic stage, mm -hmm. the power struggle, and then there, uh, the, conscious, the stage. conscious stage. And what is number four? The conscious stage, if you use the first one, is the romantic part, oh. the, the uh, attraction. And in my marriage, we're up to, I think, the fifth stage where... Um, my humor's no more, no longer funny. It's called my husband's a jerk stage. <laughs> I've heard it all. I've seen it all. I see. So the commitment and power struggle stage is kind of number two and number three. Yeah, uh, there's okay. not. You know, some people call the the uh, in the I feel called the attraction stage one, but there's not always attraction. Some people just kind of in my office, not often, but just. I had nothing else going on and we kind of got hooked up and they didn't really, there wasn't that connection. Yeah. It felt comfortable, but not. Yeah. There not wasn't, attraction. wow, this is the best person I've ever met. They're beautiful. Now let's just using these concepts, let's move. Let, let I want to ask you, we're talking here about two consenting adults. Mm -hmm. that have a relationship, probably a romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. What if this is a parent and a child? Does it still work this way? I mean, we still say have to go again. through the mirroring. Let's say, because you also work with uh, uh, parents and adults, and mm -hmm. it's all about relationships. Yes. So does the same uh, dialogue, mirroring, validation, mm -hmm. and empathy work between parent and child? And then specifically... I see that a parent can mirror what a child needs, validate it, and show empathy, but can a child do that towards the parent? Well, that's a great question. I've never thought about it. I think 
older children, maybe 16, 18, and older. Okay. But I wouldn't expect that back from... Uh, a young teenagers. Young, young teenagers. Sometimes I need you to give me eye contact, mirror back what I say. But to, to have validation and empathy, I probably wouldn't expect. And that's not their job, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But I do know, like when our daughter was really young, and we would just listen and say, okay, I hear what you're saying. You don't want to go to bed. There's a, an adult party in the house, and I don't blame you. Yeah, I This is exciting. It's fun. I wouldn't want to go to bed either. Mm-hmm. So once kids really want to be heard and understood. Yeah. And once they feel heard, they begin to not always, there's no absolutes in the mental health field. They often will soften. Okay, they. I feel heard. I feel loved. Instead of, you're going to go to bed right now, little girl, little boy, and boom, their defenses come up, and we've got a conflict often. So one way, I think, well, one way to avoid and minimize conflict is hear back. Try and understand what they're trying to tell us. Hmm. Did I answer what you're looking for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, uh, obviously, it is much more, uh, the work, when you talk about relationship issues, is usually between adults. But I also mm-hmm. realize that, uh, and, and I haven't, I'm not in that practice as you are, but I've watched <coughs> movies where there's issues between parents and children and decided to go to counseling, even with a child, mm-hmm. and a child, child counselor mm-hmm. or psychiatrist. And then the parents sit with the children, but I don't really feel that's the same. I understand because what what you do, you don't you aren't the people facing each other when they talk to each other, and it, when when you take a child, a young teenager, to a child counselor mm-hmm. or a child psychiatrist, it's usually they're sitting next to each other, mm-hmm. facing the the expert, right? Which is not the same as what you do in your work, where the people are actually facing each other and you're right there with them. Is that well, correct? Well, I used to have people sit in individual chairs facing one another. Okay. Now, for the most part, that can be too confrontational for some couples All right. to be looking right at one another. There's not enough safety. There's too much uh, anger, hurt. So I have a, 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 it's truly a magic couch. Things change on this couch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so they may be sitting facing me. But it's kind of like a triangle. And what I have people do when they're ready, and sometimes when they're not quite ready, I want to put a little pressure on and push them, is, you know, if you're going to listen to your partner right now, think about what your body would say. When someone's really hearing you, what does their body say to you? So maybe turn your body towards them. Listen with your entire body. Let them know that your eyes, your ears, your whole body is there to receive them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think when we deal with kids, absolutely. Getting Mm -hmm. down on their level, looking them in the eye, really listening makes a huge difference. People want to be heard and understood, Mm -hmm. accepted. Hmm, I see. It's almost telling them, remember the stage when, let's say between adults, when you were in love and you couldn't keep your eyes off each other. That's a great way let's, to put it. Let's go let's try yeah. to imitate that again and relive that and, and at least I understand the issues are different now. The dialogue is different, but let's still realize that 
that is the person you fell in love with, yes, give I, that person a chance to make eye contact with you. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. We'll be right back. All right, and welcome back to the program. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus. I am your host, Jacobus Holloway. With me in the studio is Bob Kazimer. And uh, we, I'm just enjoying listening to him and being in a dialogue with him. We are looking at each other. We're validating each other <laughs> for sure. And uh, I hope you feel the same way, Bob. Of course. <laughs> of course. We are back with uh, Robert Kazimer talking about Imago relationship therapy. And as we do that, uh, we... We were talking about the, the concept of dialogue. What does dialogue mean? And um, I, I, a lot of it has to do with memory. How do we access positive memory versus accessing negative memory as we are talking with a partner under your guidance? Well, <clears throat> I think it's fair to say for multiple reasons we tend to be experts at accessing negative energy or negative uh, memory, excuse me. Focus on that more, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was a matter of keeping us safe when we were being chased by woolly mammoths, saber-toothed tigers, uh, hostile tribes people. When there was danger, it got locked in the brain, and then uh, anything that remotely resembled that previous uh, uh, danger triggers the negative memory and puts us into fight or flight. Yes. So what I try and help couples to do, we were talking about before the break having that dialogue, is maybe have them close their eyes, do some deep diaphragmatic breathing, visualizing, and try and access a positive memory. Mm. And often I'll ask couples to think about what it was like when they first met. Yeah. And often I'll see, even with their eyes closed, I'll see them begin to smile. Yeah. And they'll maybe remember a magical moment when they felt really connected. And there's a huge difference when couples can come together with that memory versus <clears throat> the recent fight they had or some other negative memory. And what we also know through Daniel Siegel's work uh, he's a psychiatrist and a researcher. I don't think he's at Harvard anymore. I, he brags that he was fired from Harvard twice. Uh, <laughs> but what Siegel's work shows is that he calls them mirror neurons. And when... Mirror? Mirror, M-I-R-R-O-R. Uh-huh. Uh, and what these neurons do is that We've all experienced being in a room, somebody really fun and buoyant comes in. We, our mood might elevate slightly. Mm -hmm. Also, we've experienced when somebody angry, hostile, depressed comes into the room, that changes how we feel. And so when we're sitting, let's say, on the couch in my office and people are facing one another and one is really feeling uh, empathy and uh, having positive memory, our partner unconsciously, their mirror neurons begin to pick up on that and that they feel the same. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so there is this whole biological, neurological process that's taking place that is there to protect us but is often very unconscious. And like all defenses, 
they can be misused in the wrong place at the wrong time, not yeah. intentionally, but that's what can happen with, mm. let's say, too much focus on on the uh, negative. A negative is fear. that sometimes you hear we're just addicted to drama. Is that part of it? Drama would be a negative thing, isn't it? Isn't it? We 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 like to read the negative news before we read the positive news. Yeah. Uh, I, well, you know, I don't know if this is true, but I did read years ago that people will listen to a radio talk show host who they disdain more than one they like. I do. <laughs> no, I do. And so I think there's some truth to that. It gets, the, you know, we talked about from the last caller, the only caller about uh, uh, rational intelligence. I think we get charged by the anger, the frustration, and... That gives us some kind of a kick. Uh, so there is some truth to that. But I also think, I don't know for sure, uh, that when we've been raised in a really chaotic situation, it doesn't need to be negative. There can be just a lot of yelling, a lot of laughing. People are used to that. And maybe they have a genetic predisposition to it. They're raised in that environment. And so they may unconsciously go to that kind of high drama that you're, I think you're talking about. Yeah. And uh, I think there is a certain uh, draw to it. But I think when people begin to find out they don't need all the drama and trauma and can have a, a less stressful life, they often kind of, you see them relax, kind of sigh. Oh, that was easy. Yes. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Now, there are some things to consider on the uh, Imago relationship, there are some tips for the, which I really liked on your website, the 10 tips for the relationship of your dreams. That doesn't always have to be a romantic relationship, but would you like to share with us some of those tips? Yeah, I, I'm sure I'd be happy to talk about some of them. Uh, you know, and I, I don't think... The romantic stage has a purpose, and it sets us up to commit because without the romantic stage and that sense of euphoria and excitement and safety and fun, people are not so willing to commit. That's right. It, it, we all come into intimate relationship with a, a, a dual experience of come closer, stay away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. And, you know. That's a deep one when you think about that one. <laughs> Well, you know, it's not safe an intimate relationship unless yeah. we change how we do it. Yeah. So, you know, w without that sense of euphoria, without those chemicals being kicked into our system, it would be tough to make commitment. And our species needs couples to be together at least three years to get a child off and going. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, some of the things, you know, I, I guess I've got the list in front of me. I haven't looked at it in years. But anyways, uh, I, I talk a lot about in my office what I call marital maintenance. And my clients have heard me say this. In our country, we literally spend billions maintaining our lawns. Huh. The idea of maintaining our relationships, I often get this look like, what the heck are you talking about? Because there, we seem to want to believe the myth. If my partner really loves me, they'll know what I'm thinking, what I want, 
and it should be stress-free and uh, if we don't have that then maybe we're not meant to be together but as far as I know everything needs to be maintained our health our bodies our sleep our vehicles so there's things that we can do to maintain our marriages to keep them on track and I think even move into a deeper form of connection than the romantic stage. And the romantic stage ends, I think it's meant to, but it doesn't mean we can't add romance to the relationship. Back, back into it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that may mean, you know, a note on the pillow. That may mean a surprise trip to Chico. It may mean flowers. Part of it is knowing what, what helps your partner to feel loved. Mm-hmm. And it is your job, my job, to help our partner feel loved and appreciated every day. No, and, yeah, go ahead. go ahead. Well, what I what I see in my work, mm-hmm. and I people come in and talk have talked to me for years. They feel safe coming in. Mm-hmm. I feel a lot of opening openness mm-hmm. as they express mm-hmm. what they feel. I see men primarily coming in with some kind of a erectile dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Just the excitement, well, I can't get it up. Okay. Okay. Or they, there is just this problem. And then they want to know what pill will help them. Of course, of course Cialis and Viagra mm-hmm. are, they come up, they're brought up, or they're thinking about trying it. Mm-hmm. Or. And then I say often, I said, well, what is really going on? Mm-hmm. And I said, I have to be honest with you, from a guy to a guy, we are still very emotional beings. And I mm-hmm. said, is there something in the relationship mm-hmm. that doesn't attract you anymore mm-hmm. to your partner? And of course, right away, I throw a question at him that for most guys, that's not an easy one to answer because mm-hmm. they would actually have to show some kind of an emotion here. Uh-huh. Well, it's just, it just came in for performance. Mm-hmm. So I say, what has changed about, like you mentioned earlier, what has changed to your partner from when you met her, in this case, a man to a mm-hmm. woman, that is not there anymore today? Mm-hmm. And one of the toughest things that guys will have to tell you is that the wife doesn't look anymore the same way as she did, which mm-hmm. is part of getting older. Mm-hmm. And then I say, do you still look the same <laughs> as you did mm-hmm. and somehow that connection is not there mm-hmm. and so it takes an overhaul with changes in diet and lifestyle attitude maybe some supplements uh, maybe a cleanse doing therapy mm-hmm. uh, looking at yourself mm-hmm. and I think that that is an important part that needs to be addressed on the other hand men putting on really a lot of extra weight. There are quite a few guys that come in that have put on a lot of weight. In this country? In this country. Yeah, I know. It's shocking. <laughs> you figure everybody's outdoorsy, everybody's fine. Obviously, a lot of that is a an, an increase in estrogens through the diet and mm-hmm. through the environment. Puts on the weight right over here in the middle. Mm-hmm. That kind of estrogen has a direct suppressing effect of testosterone mm-hmm. 
And as I explained that to guys, that means that they will have to probably make some changes mm-hmm. in their diet and lifestyle in order to do that. And that is something that women are a lot more willing to try. And guys still, even when you're done with them, they still want to know where is that pill that can help me. And then I send them to the L-arginine because that is also in Cialis and it helps with nitric oxide production and semen production, etc. cetera. Um, this, is a, this is an issue that comes up and I was going to ask you about it. And I know we're talking about tips and we, we can keep mentioning tips as we go from Imago Relationship on your website, robertcasmo.com. As a therapist, when you talk to people, is there any thought that comes up in you that as people go through changes in the stages in life? Different developmental stages. Different developmental stages, different hormones that they're losing. The estradiol Mm -hmm. goes down in women. The testosterone goes down. Uh, the, The weight issue comes up. Uh, dietary changes, lifestyle changes. Mm-hmm. Are you able to incorporate all that in your in the imago therapy, or is that is it really focusing on the emotion? Well, I you understand. Don't, you understand? I think so. Let me yeah you know, redirect me if I'm off the question. But I think, from my standpoint, and there's. There's multiple reasons for all of these things, uh, but from our standpoint, kind of, we think that if there's enough safety, enough compassion for one another, uh, sexual life will be better. It's when we feel resentment, we feel resented, uh, we don't feel understood. It begins to drive a wedge between us. And I don't really address those kinds of issues. Let's say you're, I may talk about what's going on, but I'm certainly not consulting whether I think your estrogen or you know testosterone levels. Sometimes I'll ask, have you had your testosterone checked? And yeah. those kinds of things. Yeah. I also, as, uh, libido drops significantly often when there's depression. So those are the yeah. things I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so if there's depression, we try and do talk therapy and help them that way. Sometimes uh, I'll refer them to a physician, mm. sometimes I'll, uh, for uh, antidepressant or naturopath. Uh, but, yeah, the actual physiology of it, we may talk about, but I don't really... I, I don't have the knowledge base to consult. I may refer them to you, Jacobus, or someone else. <laughs> yeah, but, but for me, I, I, I hear what you're saying. But let's say somebody comes in and is on an antidepressant. Mm-hmm. And antidepressants can diminish libido. Uh, totally. Totally. Mm-hmm. But how do you approach that when you know you're talking to at least one of the two people in the office is taking medications for blood pressure or mm-hmm. cholesterol issues, mm-hmm. which has an effect mm-hmm. on the hormones. Because if you lower your cholesterol, cholesterol is responsible for hormone production. Mm-hmm. Um, they are on an antidepressant, which just doesn't get him too excited and too, too low either. That mm-hmm. kind of keeps him in the middle. Is that a negative in trying to improve a relationship when somebody is blah instead of being the true 
person that they really are. I mean, antidepressants, for example, throwing the antidepressants in, will have an effect on how a person will react and act during a therapy session and and, and in the relationship itself, wouldn't it? Yeah, but again, I'm not an expert on pharmaceuticals, but I have read a fair amount. I've spent time with uh, colleagues who are psychiatrists and pharmacists. And uh, antidepressants, if people are feeling, as you say, blah, and I've heard clients come in and say, I didn't like being on them, I don't like being on them because I don't have any emotion. Well, what that says to me is, A, they may be on the wrong medication, the dose may be wrong. I don't think the intention of antidepressants is to make zombies out of people. It's to help diminish uh, negative feelings and elevate the positive. And so if people are feeling that blah, I want to send them back to their physician to have them uh, review the medication and the medications vary, and 40% of the people that go to a psychiatrist, not just a family doctor, 40% of them in the first round of antidepressants may not work. There's no blood test that says, yes, if we look at this blood, you're going to need Prozac or something else. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of uh, listening and trying uh, uh different medications to address the problem. Well, thank you for that. And I let's see if we can continue with that when we come back. We have to take a quick break here. Folks, stay tuned. We have an hour left of Gesundheit with Jacobus. Uh, my guest, uh, Robert Kasmer, will be right back. I realize, Bob, as we are talking uh, in the last hour about hormones, I am passionate about it because... The main thing is because I realize more and more that people are being misdiagnosed by the experts. And so this is also an oxymoron. How can an expert misdiagnose? Part of that is because they look at blood work or hormone testing and find out that as far as their information is concerned, that is within normal range as you have mentioned you and i were talking before the program and you say one of the most important thing is that you listen to your patient that you mm -hmm. listen to the people in front of you because throw everything else out the window listen to what they say then and then you can incorporate whatever tests that are being done blood tests saliva mm -hmm. test whatever psychological test you can incorporate that into your therapy session that it makes you as a professional wiser about the person you're talking to so you can help them better. Mm -hmm. Most doctors don't have the time. There are different reasons for that, and we don't have to get into it. But the point is people go to a doctor because they see them as the expert. They say, I'll open myself up completely, try to get whatever I need so that when I leave, when I go back in the car and I leave, I actually feel that I have the answer I need to move on to the next stage of my life. Okay. And, and I feel that if you are misdiagnosed and you feel miserable and the, the information should have been read better and should have been listened to better, then it is a, the right step in the right direction. 
now they come to you and they say, well, uh, there is something going on. I, I, I can't handle the relationship, whatever that relationship is, where you may pick up that there is a, there is a hormonal problem that was misdiagnosed. Mm-hmm. I know it's not your expertise. I'm not, I'm not saying, well, you know, but if you know that that is true, isn't that frustrating? Or if you know that somebody's sitting with you who is on antidepressants, you realize that the real person is not really sitting there with you. It, it's they're partly manipulated because of the medication. They're held into a balance so they can actually function on a daily basis. But is that enough for you to work with those people? Well, I don't... You understand? Well, I'm not sure, but I don't know if... I don't know if... <laughs> Because they're an anti- on an antidepressant, the real person isn't there. Um, I think that we're multiple parts. There's always, if we didn't have constant conflict between our internal multiple parts, part of me thinks I should go work out, part of me says, to heck with it, I'm going to go get a burger. Yeah. Part of me wants to go out tonight, another part of me doesn't. Okay. So I don't know if the real person isn't there. And I certainly don't feel qualified to say, antidepressants shouldn't be used at all. I've seen them help people tremendously. I've yeah. seen one of the symptoms men seem to experience more than women in depression is irritability, burst, outbursts of anger. And I think if the antidepressant can help reduce that and help them have a happier life, I think it's great. Um, but what I do try to do, and again, I am not a physician in that really qualified to take a complete medical history by any means, but I always want to know, how are you sleeping? How much alcohol or drugs are you consuming? Is there a family history of anxiety, depression, alcohol abuse, Mm -hmm. health problems? Uh, All of those things can help me join with the the client and understand maybe there's more going on. During the break, we talked about sleep apnea and other sleep disorders. And what we know is that people with sleep disorders have often many or most of the symptoms of depression, but they're not depressed per se. They're depressed as a symptom of sleeping poorly. And if I can send them to a sleep center, a doctor, if they get that addressed, we see mood elevate often because they're not sleeping well, they gain weight. Yeah, yeah. And so we see those changes. Um, often, well, I delete often. Occasionally, I have clients with multiple health problems. They don't seem to be go- getting anywhere here. I may encourage them to ask another expert, get a second opinion. Go, uh, uh, let's say somebody has a child with autism. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, UC Davis in California's got a lot of great information. They're doing wonderful work. UCLA is doing great work with anxiety disorders. I may suggest, well, if you're not getting the help here, you've tried this, this, and this, mm. maybe you ought to go online and research this, talk to them, see what they can do for yeah, you. Yeah, do something in your own time and bring that back to the session next right. time. Right, and yeah. sometimes people come in, they're too breast, they're too stressed. I want to carry the ball of hopefulness and, okay, this isn't working. Let's. What do you think about going to the Mayo Clinic and doing something different? Hmm. And so I do look at it uh, in that um, I will try to suggest they 
explore other avenues to get help that they might be that they need. Mm-hmm. But because of the way that you work, your your comfort, your safety, the feeling of safety, uh, it, it could be the calming factor that is needed for them to actually um, could be the calming factor for them to actually let it sink in and say, you know, it. I trust you. I I will mm-hmm. uh, uh, pursue those avenues. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I realize that as you are talking, as I'm talking and I'm listening to myself, listening to you, I realize indeed that the whole concept of health is very complex, mm-hmm. especially when it deals when you deal with the emotions. There mm-hmm. are so many factors that could be playing a role in 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 why people are not happy, why they don't get along, and indeed we cannot fill that in this show and i realized that i need to focus indeed on your work mm-hmm. as an imago uh, relationship therapist uh, um, but to me it is fascinating to 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 uh, i'm glad that you bring up the diet the sleep apnea to the the, the being the the middle person between mm-hmm. these people sending them in a new direction and say let's find out if that is something mm-hmm. you we need to address something you cannot do i cannot do but another expert may may yes. help them with mm-hmm. move them in the right direction. Yes, I I, I see that, and um, that's it's good stuff. Five two two eight two five 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 two two eight two five five. If you have a comment or question about this, well, one of the things I w- would mention is is that we know uh, uh, um, the myth is is that we're rugged individualists. We do not need affection, love, appreciation. And it's been an incredibly damaging myth. Mm -hmm. And that I really want to stress this maybe more than anything else for the people who may be listening is that the myth that we don't need one another is destructive. We know that I read years ago and I don't... Uh, it may not be. I may not remember it completely accurately, but one of the good ways to diagnose middle-aged men and older, uh, if they're a candidate for heart disease, is one, married men. One question: Do you feel loved by your wife? Ah, uh-huh. and so that's where I want to help people. I I don't want to say I'm an expert. I'm not comfortable with that. I think that when people feel love and can receive love, which we know more people have a hard, a more difficult time receiving love than giving love, when there's that flow of give and take of love, of caring, appreciation, people recover from disease quicker. Yeah. They're less likely to have get disease. Uh, there's just too much research out there about cancer and heart disease, especially how important intimate relationship is. Um, and so I think my area is to help them find out what, why they have a hard time giving, receiving love, what parts of them are fearful, and address that. Oh. And have a better relationship with who they are so they can have a better relationship with those in their life. Huh. Does that yeah. address some of what you're saying? Absolutely. Uh, some of the things I want to just touch on is that you know, I, want, I do want to mention, again, the ability to receive love. It's, it's threatening for people. They're more vulnerable. If I let someone in and then they disappoint me, I'll be hurt. Please address that. The other thing uh, 
I want to go back to, we were talking about the three or four stages of love. Yeah. What Harville Hendricks and others are saying, and I really think there's a, a high degree of truth to it, is yes, marriage is about relationship and romance. For those who want children, it's about ro- procreation. But what he is saying, and I, again, I believe to be true, is relationship is really more about personal and emotional growth, psychological growth. It's the love relationship is is not pain-free. It's the dandelion coming up through the asphalt. Hmm. What our partners want of us often is where we need to grow. If one pursues too much and one distances, which is often the case, what's going on that you want to pursue so much? What's going on that you want to distance? Once we understand it, and then we can create some ways to help them change. So the, the distancer on an unconscious uh, level often in some way is saying, too much intimacy makes me uncomfortable, I want to run. The pursuer is saying, if I don't have enough intimacy, I feel anxious, scared, and I want to pursue more. And so what we see is in coupleship is what helps one partner to reduce their anxiety triggers anxiety in the other. And so if we have a spender and a spendthrift, the spender says, I just love to go out and shop. It's fun. I feel better. The other partner's saying, the way I grew up, you don't waste money, and it makes me anxious when you spend money. I see. And so the spender's saying, get off the dime, let me spend money. The tightwad is saying, don't spend so much because it makes me anxious. I see. And so the tightwad, yours truly, uh, <laughs> has to say, okay, I know that we're not going to die if we go out to dinner and spend some extra money. Let's enjoy it. The one who's spending too much has to do what their partner says, vice versa. Spend less, find better ways to deal with your anxiety. I see. And so it's that dynamic that can push people into a healthier way of being, being coming out of their comfort zone, being bigger and better at who they are. So let me ask you then, it's not, you don't feel it as you, in your work that you're trying to fix the tightwad or try to fix the spender. It is more, how can these two people work together better? I think both are true. Okay. If the person who is absurdly tight with money but has enough that they can live very comfortably, but don't. I want to understand. I want to help them understand what's going on here. What is your fear if you do spend money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then begin to talk about it, not just to act it out. I the see. person who spends too much, what's this doing for you? What's the history? And can you get that emotional need of safety from not spending money? Or can you get the emotional need of spending money met on a different way without it being self-destructive. It doesn't mean you eliminate it, but maybe you have some more awareness, you figure out some other ways to reduce your anxiety and deal with it in a more conscious way. Hmm. Did that answer what you're looking for? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, yeah. But you've done this, go ahead. by, By me changing my behavior, let's say being a tightwad, helps me expand my ability to cope, but it also helps my partner feel closer to me because I'm not always demanding they not spend money. 
Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, as we said it earlier, you know, years ago I used to think of the Japanese word do, the suffix do in Japanese means the way. And I think intimate relationship is relationship do. Pushing, wrestling, inviting, not demanding. Inviting our partner to try something new, to grow, to help themselves and help us hmm. as individuals. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah. 25 plus years you have done this work. Mm -hmm. When you, if you step to the outside and you look back in, can you see big changes in the, in the topics you address or are they really still similar? Mm. Is, it, is, there a, is there a shift? Is there a change? Uh, well, for me, there's been a, a perceptual changes. Okay. Of, you know, I started off in grad school. The grad school I went to, they really focused on family therapy, bringing okay. the whole family in, getting the family to change as a unit. Um, I don't think about that so much anymore. I don't think I'm an expert at children. I don't see kids anymore very often. And so I think I've shifted in realizing how important coupleship is and that if we can get parents to be healthy, have a healthier marriage, then they parent better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other thing that is shifting for me is out of the family systems work, uh, a, a, a uh, ex-professor at Northwestern, uh, Dr. Richard Schwartz, over the last 20-some years has developed this internal family systems. And I, I just, uh, I, I guess, graduated from the first level of training, and I'm going to continue on and do the second level of training. But it's really in family systems within you, dealing with those parts of you that cause conflict, that, that hijack us. Yeah. And so that shifted um, in that I really having the healthiest part of me talk to the healthiest part of you or anyone else. And so, yeah, there have been shifts. There are shifts in the culture, how we perceive okay, things. Okay, that's, that's right. And I think the shift recently in economy has changed how people are coming in. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I guess I don't want to be stagnant. I probably am. Well, let me ways. ask you a silly question. Does, does religion play a big role if people decide they want to do counseling or not? Do you find that people who are uh, very fundamentalists, that they feel they have to solve their own problems, they won't come to therapy? Or can you not say there is, um, uh, I mean, do people have to be open-minded to come and really open themselves up? Well, I, Is that something I, you observe? I guess. I think there has to be a certain willingness to take personal responsibility for how they're co-creating the dysfunction, whatever it is, in the relationship. I'm asked on occasion, am I a Christian counselor? No. Do I do biblical uh, uh, marriage therapy? No. And oft sometimes people then, in spite of uh, my lack of knowledge, will continue to come to see me or continue to see me, or they'll go see a, a, a minister. A, there are Christian counselors. Uh, and, yeah, I do see that as an issue, not, I don't know, I think maybe because of, of the work I, I do, I don't see a lot of religious conflict. Uh, I, I do think that um, people 
may see what I do as voodoo and not real and, and really? not biblically based, and that's fine. It doesn't make sense to me. If that it, was the case, then it doesn't make sense to me because well, it's all about relationships. Yeah, but it makes sense to them, and so I have to leave that. Right. It doesn't have to make sense to me. Huh. Um, and I, if I've done it, I probably have unconsciously. I don't want to change somebody's convictions. But um, do, do you feel that uh, 25 years ago it was a bigger aspect and now it's not? Or if you talk about the changes that you have seen, you may have seen. And I don't want to go delve too deep, but sometimes when you do something for a while, you go like, you know, it's really interesting because these were the kind of questions I dealt with a lot more then. And now I see a lot more questions and issues coming up today that we didn't have then. I mean, that's kind of what I meant. Well, okay. Well, as far as religion, I, I think I have no empirical data that there has been a greater movement toward the evangelical belief system. I also, in my practice, see men much more willing to come into therapy than they were 20 years ago. Okay. And I, I for me, I think that's positive. Mm. Uh, um. Maybe yeah. let's hold that thought. Okay. When we come back, we'll see if we want to continue with that. Okay. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus on only another 25 to 30 minutes. Stay tuned. We will be right back. Imago relationship therapy is a is one of these. It's an it's one of the different therapies out there. You picked it because it felt the closest to you. And um, it has worked for you very well. I talked to you. You say you're very busy with what mm -hmm. you're doing, which is just wonderful. It shows that not only the way that you work with Imago relationship is the way to go. The people connect with you and feel very, uh, they trust you and feel safe working with you. So I compliment you on your success for the many years in these economic times that you are doing as well as you do. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And uh, we do have a caller who has a question for you or a comment. Caller, good morning to you, your name, if you like, and you're on the air with Robert Kasmer. Hi. Hi. Hi, my name is Aunt Jo. Hello. Hi. And uh, I'm going to take it a little bit in a different direction. Yeah. What I wanted to ask Robert is um, when is it appropriate or the right thing to do to end a relationship? Oh, um, what I'm thinking about is um, a friend that I have known for many, many years. And um, over the years, I feel that I have been, um, that this person is a crazy maker type person, mm -hmm. uh, an expert manipulator, as mm -hmm. it turns out, which is not easy to tell until 12 or 14 years have gone by, at least in my opinion. Oh. And that may be my ignorance or whatever but so um my opinion is um there there might be a point where i would say well i think that the um friendship is ended mm -hmm. or i um don't want to do this anymore mm -hmm. and it's not like it's a, a criminal thing or uh, something extreme but it's a, a hidden thing <laughs> If I could say that, because of the manipulation, mm -hmm. and you know, you you get kind of sucked into things that you don't want to be sucked into, and then when you 
say, no, I don't want to do this, then you get <clears throat> a reaction to that that's not positive. Right. Anger. Or, you know, guilt. Guilt. Defending. Their, they want to defend their position. And huh. So the question is, how do you know when to uh, end that kind of relationship? Yeah. I mean, do you just say to yourself, well, I've had it? Well, a couple things. I think saying you've had it makes perfect sense. <laughs> um, there, there, there's uh, no concrete information that, in an outline that says when. I think we have to listen to ourselves. Uh, and, you know, if you want to, you might begin to think, what part of me is afraid to end this relationship possibly? Exactly. What, what part of me is... Uh, willing to put up with this and because when we say yes to others when we really don't want to a couple things happen one is we're saying no to what's probably best for us probably Mm -hmm. then inevitably we begin to feel resentment towards them for doing what we don't want to do and uh, then often we'll feel guilty because of things they say and do And the other thing that I see is, so this person is pressuring you, manipulating you to, I guess, do things that you're not comfortable with. Exactly. And so then you feel pressured, you go ahead and do these things, and you you inevitably feel resentment. And then the next step is, we want to say to this person, you know, when you said, did this didn't do this uh, I was really uncomfortable and don't want to do it anymore instead of hearing you they further escalate their argument they gather more evidence to prove that they're right and prove more evidence to prove you wrong exactly and where soon as we start to debate that we've taken the bait the bait yes and we look for them to confirm that oh yeah you're right I shouldn't have done that. And that was, you know, I was stretching our relationship. I'm sorry I did that. But if they were able to do that, you probably wouldn't have this kind of relationship with them. So we need to be able to validate ourselves. You know, I'm okay in saying no, and it's all right. I don't need their validation to say I'm right and uh, they shouldn't have done that because that probably won't happen. And so it's partially validating ourselves. You know, I just don't want to do this anymore, and I don't need their approval to. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of the hook. As soon as we start to engage in justifying why we do want to do or don't want to do something, we've taken the debate, and there's nowhere to go with it. Mm -hmm. He or she will gather evidence to prove their case and prove yours wrong. And it, most of the time, you can't. It's not measurable. Exactly. And so, don't take the bait. If I can advise you, or mm-hmm. encourage you, delete advice, and just you know, whatever this person's name is, you may be right. I may be doing it wrong, but it doesn't fit for me. And I've made this decision because of what I want or don't want, and that's that's the end of it. If we try and justify it. We're chasing our tails, and uh, we've taken the bait, and we won't get out of that situation. Right, and I think the 
the justification thing is pretty heavy, you know, and has gone on for a long time. So mm-hmm. there's definitely a, a serious habit going on. Let me ask you a question, uh, Bob. If you, if you, if you're at that debatable point where mm-hmm. you go like, I don't know how I end this, could you approach it and say, I need to take a break from this? I'm sure any of that. I mean, that reasonable. gives you a little bit more. Then obviously you are creating distance, but you're not cutting it off right away. You let it be more gentle cut, or do you say no? You might as well cut it off. I think it's so idiosyncratic. It's so individual. Whatever a person wants to do. Mm. Um, if you feel like this person's just not going to hear me, no matter what I say, they're going to push their agenda and deny mine. Then you, I think it's the first law of physics. You may have to have an equal and opposite reaction. If they're just not going to hear me, I'm debating my dog. I just end a relationship, don't rent, return calls, or uh, avoid them. If they're willing to hear you, you feel strong enough, safe enough to get your message out. That's you can't you can't control the other to make them listen or agree. Does this help? Yes, it does. And my sense about it, too, is that I need to uh, have some courage about it for defending myself, for what I think is right to do. Well, if I can, you don't need to defend it. You just, this is because I'm uncomfortable with it. No more. And if it's helpful, maybe write this out to help you clarify what you need Mm -hmm. and how you want to go about it. Uh, I think... Less write it out like W-R-I-T-E. Yeah, write, write it, it out. out. What do I want to do here? Help clarify this if I get it on paper. And you don't need to justify it other than I'm no longer comfortable with that's this. Right, that's right. This, okay. this yeah. hurts my feelings. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't yeah. feel good. I feel taken advantage of. End of story. Right. Huh. Anything beyond that, you're going to take the bait and away you go. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, this has gone on for... Yes. Over a decade, and wow. I, I still haven't uh, figured it out. Well, <clears throat> or No, you have figured it out, <laughs> else you wouldn't be calling. It is just that you haven't found the strength to, uh, to take the action. Exactly. That's exactly right. Well, I guess, you know, there may be part of you that feels guilty, feels like I don't deserve to do this to this person, but right. the loyalty needs to... D- I think, and I'm reluctant to say needs, but I think we do better when we're loyal to our own core needs and listen to ourselves. Just like on an airplane, they tell us to put the oxygen mask on our children for, or on ourselves before our children. I think that applies here. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Love that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. <laughs> and so, yeah. It, when we have these relationships, and we all do, it they're standing on our shoulders and we feel horrible. It's our job to get them off our shoulders. Does, <laughs> does that make sense? It absolutely does. Yeah. And you, you know, there's part of you that may be feeling, I, I, I need to take care of them before me. And you might write that part, see what it has to tell you about why it believes that. You mean like a journaling or something? Exactly. Ah, okay. Give those parts, that part that says, here's, we're always in, in, in polarized conflict, I think. 
And if we people weren't, I wouldn't be in, in business anymore. But what I hear you saying, <laughs> what I hear you saying, there's part of me that feels maybe guilty, reluctant, apprehensive to end this relationship. Exactly. Then there's another part of me that just wants to get rid of it. Right. So I might encourage the part that wants to get out of it. Let Write that out. What is that part telling you? As if it's a separate person, and then maybe write out the part that feels they need to be there. Maybe try and understand where this evolved, and it's probably no longer functional. It may have been very functional at another time in your life, but my hunch is it's probably that part that wants to stay there served a purpose in the past, but probably has outlived its usefulness. Wow, that, I think that's great. Well, I hope so. Mm. Um, so, you know, try that. Uh, if if it helps, if it doesn't, let me know if you want. You know, I'm in the book, 585-2710. Okay. Okay. Anything else? Uh, that's it. Thank you so much. Yeah, good luck with this. All right. Uh, thank you for the call. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ah, boy, yeah, that, is, that was a great answer. Thank you. Thank you. Because uh, that, is, that is a constant struggle as we want to be good people, and so we end up being more enablers yes. than, uh, than actually standing up for ourselves. We're willing to suffer so right. that we, we help so-called facilitate, enable this other person. And, and we're enabling dysfunctional uh, behavior uh, behavior yeah and you know i think most of us struggle from going from being passive to aggressive and bypass being assertive mm. but one of the things before we wrap up i don't know how much time we have but i just want to go back to talking about marital maintenance would that be all right yeah few there's some things that we know from research that makes marriage work better one is often a daily appreciation and it can't be while you're preoccupied with the football game or washing dishes hey i appreciate this when couples sit down eye to eye on the couch across the kitchen table and tell their partner you know i really appreciate you letting the dog out at three in the morning i loved when you rubbed my shoulders those things make a huge difference. John Gottman's research shows that couples that do really well without a lot of assistance have a, a five or six to one ratio of positive exchanges for every negative. And it's easy to be critical and judgmental, but we'll build safety, we'll build connection to tell our partner something we appreciate at least a couple times a week, hopefully more than that. And it may be there's part of me that's still frustrated that you did or didn't do this, but I also recognize that you said this and that was so helpful. Thank you. Mm. We tend to just focus on what they did or didn't do that we don't like. Mm. Another thing that the research shows that most couples struggle with reunions and departures. In the average couple's day-to-day -day life, there are two reunions, two <sighs> departures. And when they spend 30 seconds, 15 to 60 seconds at those reunions and, and departures, they report greater satisfaction. So the first reunion is often in the morning. Spend 15 seconds, 60 seconds. How did you sleep? Tell me about a dream. Recognizing, acknowledging one another. 
The first departure is when people go to work. Again, 15 to 60 seconds. How you doing? Let me know how work goes. What time do you get off? Just a hug, a kiss, connection. The next reunion is when people meet back at home at night. Same thing. How was your day? Have a meal together. Connect. Let me hear about the problem you had. And then the last reunion or the departure is it going to bed, sleep well, a hug, a kiss, make love. But when couples have one appreciation a day if they can and connect at those four junctures, the research shows their sense of satisfaction goes way up in the marriage. Wow. Another study that I recently read is that when couples hug, full body hug, clothes or unclothed, that for six seconds, certain chemicals are released in the brain that help us to feel just a, a mild sense of comfort and euphoria. What they found is when couples can take six seconds and have six hugs a day, a total of 36 seconds of hugging, <laughs> they feel better. Couples who kiss for 10 minutes at a time feel better. So these are small things that couples can do that they're not climbing Everest without a rope. They're relatively simple. And sometimes it feels like a risk to talk to your partner, but both people have to take 100% responsibility and take those risks because without the risk of, of becoming vulnerable, we do not get connected. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Other thoughts? Well, I'm kind of listening here. Okay. I, uh, it's, uh, it's very good. I, the, the connection thing is huge. And I know more and more just being heard. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I dream, but I don't remember anything mm -hmm. when I wake up. My wife dreams and she knows. And I know, what, like you said, when she, when she starts telling me about what she was dreaming, it 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 is mm -hmm. indeed. If I if I you know to me it means nothing. So I'm gonna go, okay. I gotta go. Gotta yeah. go. You know. But if indeed if I listen, and really with interest and try to you know not try but I'm actually in the moment with mm -hmm. her. Huge difference. Yeah. Because even though she may say it didn't make any sense, this dream so and so was involved, and we were over there, and we were up in this attic, and we were down in the mm -hmm. cellar, and we were doing over in the forest, and and she says I have no clue where all this came from, but just the fact that she can say that, it has actually become a very enjoyable moment for me to listen to her dreams, mm -hmm. and and I know that it means a lot to her. Exactly. And and it is it it is so much better. Then running over to the TV and watch a little TV when you come home, you know. I, and not that I do that, but I I know that How we avoid. there are times to say, you know, I really got to see this or I want to record this program or whatever. Avoiding is is very simple. It's mm -hmm. uh, the connection part. Indeed, look each other in the eye yeah, and give and each other a hug and a kiss and and say, you know, you love each other and like you say, the appreciation. It's it's very much and and I see that at this stage in my life. I actually am consciously taking more time for that mm -hmm. than I have had, than I've done mm -hmm. years ago. It's, it's, uh, I, I think it's part of me, myself, growing up. It sounds silly, no, but it I, is, I, it's I part it's, of growing up. I think developmentally that's what happens. As we age, often people move into different developmental stages, the brain changes, more, more, more we become more compassionate, more willing to listen. And but it, it, it's also, 
I see, because of the connection, I see much more of the value that my spouse brings me. Mm-hmm. And because Wonderful. I see the value, I, I realize how valuable she is mm-hmm. in many aspects of life. Mm-hmm. And so it is reason to hold on to. Sounds perfect. Great. Yeah, it's it's really uh, it's really amazing. It makes me happier, and uh-huh. uh, you know, because it's easy to go into your routine and take the spouse for granted. Mm-hmm. It's a whole other thing. Your life and your routine will be completely enriched if you indeed make those connection points, as you just say. Yeah, I think often maybe it's not the content that our partner is telling us, but it, we miss an opportunity to connect. It may not be what they're saying, but it is a bid for connection. Yeah. You know, come in and complain about politics or talk about somebody in the family. It's an opportunity to connect. When we avoid that, they'll inevitably feel shut down and won't let them move into another part of relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, the, in Imago, we talk about the platinum rule, not giving on to others what we want but listening and giving our partners what helps them to feel loved. We often, men often feel loved through physical intimacy and women don't feel that so much. Yeah. And so when men listen to women, what helps women to feel loved, they often have more physical intimacy. Right, that's totally true. Um, there, there, is a, there is a heightened, uh, heightened desire mm-hmm. and to do that. Mm-hmm. But as they sometimes say, you give a man a Ferrari, he'll be your friend for life. You give a woman a Ferrari, it's one point. <laughs> it's constantly work. A flower is a point. It's just as much can mean just as much to a woman as a nice card, as a right. expensive ring. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be monetarily. It is it's spending the time and the intention. Yeah, and that's part of the marital maintenance. Part of re-romanticizing relationship. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, uh, you know, I grabbed an article out of the uh, file from, uh, uh, from. I don't know why I put it in the Imago relationship therapy file that I had, but it it says uh, this was from the Chronicle in uh, January twenty second, two thousand three. So this is seven years old, and it says because I asked you earlier, what are some of the big changes that you have observed mm-hmm. in your work? And this one says love and marriage, husbands and wives more move in opposite directions. Love and sex are more important to a happy marriage for men in their late 50s and early 60s than at any other time in their lives, a new survey says. So love and sex are more important to a happy marriage for men in their late 50s and early 60s. Unfortunately for them, that is just when intimacy becomes less important to women. The survey being published, blah, 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 was came out on Reader's Digest, found that between the ages of 57 and 64, men become more attentive to their wives, while women, finally freed from family responsibilities, find more goals outside of marriage. The guys are saying, now are saying, the guys are saying, now I get it. I want more intimacy, says John uh, um, Gottman and Mar- Gottman. That's the Gottman Institute. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, a marriage expert who analyzed polling data for the magazine. And the women are saying, sorry, bub, I've already done that. I've got my own goals now. So it's, uh, again, the connection point. We can read the whole article. It's interesting. But uh, uh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, new information for me. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, do you what what age levels do you work with? Uh, probably the average age is 30s to 40s. 30s to 40s. But I've certainly seen people, couples from 18, had a couple come in who were in their 80s. Wow. That polarized is rare, but most people probably late 20s to 40s, some yeah, 50s I would say and so. 60s. Yeah, when they actually get a, either get professionally stronger or when they realize they want to hold on to the relationship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's been a great time with you. Thank you. Thank you fun. very much. I appreciate it. And all the best, uh, Robert Bob Kasmer, a licensed psychotherapist in Bozeman. 585-2710 is his number. We're going to be back. See you then. You're listening to Gesundheit with Jacobus.